Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue our series on how Jesus is greater. Um, while you're turning there, I'll just remind you that tonight's a special night, uh, since today's our, uh, our 21st anniversary, uh, Tabernacle's all grown up now, and uh, we're going to have a story night where uh, we're just going to have some, some time to worship at 6.30. Uh, we want to hear from some of like our OGs, uh, some of those original members, what it was like to leave uh, Covenant Presbyterian in Harrisonburg to plant Tabernacle, and then uh, furthermore, what it was like for some of us to, to leave Tabernacle and, um, and to plant Holy Cross in Stanton. Uh, some of you, well, actually most of you, don't know those stories. Uh, you, you know, you've, you've, you're part of our family, but maybe only in the past uh, 10 years or so, uh, and, and so all of that was really um, you know, before you were, you were here. And it's important for you to know those stories. So come, come tonight at 6.30, uh, bring a dessert. We'll share dessert afterward downstairs in the fellowship hall, and I think that's going to be a, a sweet time together. All right, let's, uh, let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 in chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the, house, as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for... For Jesus, help us to consider him, even now. Uh, Lord, thank you that he has built a house, he's built a church, and that by your grace and through faith in him, we can be included as members in your house. What a privilege. Lord, let our, our hearts swell in the knowledge of that, we pray even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, in, in these six verses, there's one word that just keeps popping up uh, again and again, the word house, uh, and, and that's significant. We're going to talk about uh, how Jesus has provided a, a greater house than was previously experienced by God's people. Uh, but, but let's begin here at the, uh, in verse 1 where, uh, where Jesus talks about, uh, where, where we're considered holy brothers through Jesus. Um, and, and, you know, when I send out these, uh, these greetings on Wednesdays, even on the front of your, your Sunday bulletin, I always, you know, kind of begin with the, the words, dear saints, right? I don't know if you've noticed that before. Um, and, and that's really kind of an echo of what, what's being communicated here. Uh, holy brothers. A saint is somebody who's holy. A saint is sanctified. A saint is, is set apart. Uh, and in Back in chapter 2 and verse 11, you know, we were talking about how he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's who we are. We're, we're, we're holy. Uh, we're, we're sanctified. And, uh, and that's why I, I begin my greetings with uh, dear saints. And, and some of you deserve that greeting. 
And then there's the rest of us. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, uh, what is a saint? We, we do sort of think that a saint is the super holy person. <clears throat> That's, you know, some, some people, yeah, we, we can say they're saintly, but but look, you don't have to be you know, squeaky clean to be a saint. I, I hope that's our aspiration. I hope we want to be clean in the sense that our, um, our, our character would match our creed. But look, we <laughs> aspire as, as we do. Uh, none of us is consistent uh, in, in that you know, cleanliness, in our, in our character. Um, and we all mess up, and we all, we, we all fail and, and fall, and that's why it is such good news that your identity as a saint isn't dependent on your behavior. It's dependent on Jesus. It's dependent on how he has set you apart and, and called you holy, uh, and, and that holiness is his holiness applied uh, to us. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, later. But, you know, some of us <clears throat> grew up in churches where you, know, you only heard one thing again and again and again kind of pounded into you that you're a sinner, right? Um, and, and I think there's sort of a character of, of, of those churches, sadly, uh, those, those characters ring really true, where, where God's people come together and they're just kind of beaten down. And it's the pastor's job to, to tell them, you know, all the time, just how terrible and awful um, and, and how sinful they are. And look, the Bible declares that every single person who is united to Jesus is holy. If you're in Christ, you're holy. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you're not still a sinner, but the, the Bible declares that everybody who's in Christ is, is perfected, is beautified in God's eyes. You're a saint uh, in God's eyes, and you're dear to him. And so, therefore, it's right to be, to be called dear saints, right? Um, and other people grew up in, in churches, so that's one, one group, you know, um, their experience was just feeling like berated all the time, sinner, sinner, sinner. There's another group of people who grew up in churches where the only thing they ever heard was just how good they were all the time. You know, they, they were the saints, and of course, they were warned against, you know, those who, who sin, those terrible sinners out there, you know, being told, you know, don't ever smoke, drink, or chew, and, and, and don't go with boys or girls that do, right? Uh, those people are terrible. And so sin was sort of outside, not inside. Sin was out there, not in here, certainly not in uh, your heart. And, and against that caricature, that's a caricature too, uh, the Bible says that, look, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Because it's part of our nature. We're, we are sinners by nature, and we're made saints through the new creation. We're both. We're, we're saints and sinners. Uh, and there's a, you know, Luther and the Reformers were talking about this. Simultaneously, you know, we, we sin and we're saints. Uh, and, and it's sort of, sort of this mystery of the now and the not yet. The gospel makes us holy by virtue of Jesus, and yet we still sin, we still war uh, against the flesh. Uh, and so what we're hoping is that there's going to come this day in the future, right? This is our, our sure hope, that, that Jesus is going to remove all vestiges of sin from us forever, and then we'll be perfected as saints, and that's our future sanctification like we were talking about last week. In the meantime, look, we are... We are holy brothers and sisters. 
what, what the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 3, he's saying to us, and it's not unusual for a New Testament letter to be addressed like, uh, to the saints at you know, Colossae, Philippi, Corinth, etc. But this is the only time where the, a, a New Testament letter begins, you know, or in the early parts of the letter says, you know, to the, to the, the saintly brothers or to the holy brothers, to the saintly uh, sisters. And so this is unique uh, to be called holy brothers. Uh, and this is really an echo of what we saw in earlier in chapter two, how Jesus is not ashamed uh, to call us his brothers, to call us his sisters. That's part of the glory of the gospel, that Jesus is not ashamed of you uh, because he loves us and he gave himself for us and he sings in the midst of our, of our assembly. And so we want to consider Jesus, the difference that he makes in our lives. And what does the gospel say about us through him. He makes all the difference. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. Here, Jesus is called uh, an apostle. He's called a, a high priest. It's, uh, you know, th this... Uh, passage is the only place in the New Testament where you see the language holy brothers. It's also the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to as an apostle. He, uh, why is that? I thought he was the one who sent out the apostles, right? He chose his apostles and sent them out, but, uh, but, but he was sent too. Uh, he is doing for the apostles that, that we recognize, the 12 apostles, uh, he was commissioning them in the same way that he himself uh, was commissioned by his father. He says that he was sent by his father, and that's what an apostle is, a, a sent one. And in that regard, Jesus then turns to all of his followers and says, I'm sending you. And we're all, therefore, apostles with you know, lowercase a, sent out by Jesus to tell the world that we have a high priest, this, this high priest of our confession, Jesus is our priest, and we confess him as this one who stands in our place, as somebody who's fully human, just like us, and he stands before the Father, and he meets the Father's approval, even though we can't, he does, because he's perfect. He's beautiful. He's righteous. He, he's, he's who we want to be, right, as we aspire to be the best person we, we can be. Jesus fulfilled that. We, we don't. And he's the high priest that we need. He's the high priest we confess. I need a priest. Because left to myself, I, I, can't, I can't stand before God and be found righteous. All of us will stand before God, but we dare not do it in and of ourselves. We, we won't pass the test. But Jesus is the high priest that we confess because we confess, A, I need a priest, and B, I, I need that priest. I don't need a human priest. I need Jesus, the, the, the fully human and fully God priest who is truly able to, to take away my sin. So so we're sent out just like Jesus is, and we, you know, 
point to the, the, the priest, and in that sense, you know, we fulfill that role too. Little p, priests, pointing to Jesus, the true high priest. We need him. You need him. Everybody needs him. So, um, look, the, the author of Hebrews tells us, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, this priest, this apostle. Always consider Jesus. Never stop considering Jesus. And, um, and Hebrews loves to, and we'll look at this later in later chapters, but it loves to kind of do these bookends where um, the themes that were introduced to here at the beginning of Hebrews, we'll, we'll see, keep popping up and and, and, and in the end, you know, we, we see him again. So we get to chapter 12 of Hebrews, and it says, doesn't say consider Jesus, but it does say fix our eyes on Jesus, um, you know, the author uh, of our faith. So never stop considering Jesus. Never stop fixing uh, your eyes on Jesus. You and I are, are there's just never going to be uh, a situation in our lives where we should not consider Jesus. There's just never going to, we're never going to have an experience, we're never going to have a circumstance where fixing our eyes on Jesus isn't the right thing to do in that moment, in, in that circumstance. Do you ever think about that? Like, consider Jesus. Like, just keep considering Jesus. Don't stop considering Jesus in everything that we do. I think a, a great way to kind of point this out or to illustrate this is, is remember, do you remember when you had your first crush? Some, some of you are like, yeah, that's, I'm crushing hard right now, right? Uh, or, or maybe that was a long time ago and you have to kind of dredge those memories up. But your first crush, that was all you can do. You, you, you just thought about her or thought about him all the time. You, you never stopped considering You, you never stopped considering him. And you didn't do anything without thinking of her, thinking about him. And, and, and thoughts of her, thoughts of him affected, how am I going to dress today? How am, how am I going to get her attention? How am I going to get his attention? What, what, should, what, what should I, maybe I should shower today, right? Uh, maybe I should brush my teeth today. And, it, and, it, and you, you considered her, you considered him, and it affected everything about you. It, it affected what you said in proximity to him or her. Like, what, did you, what, what words were going to come out of your mouth? What stories were you going to tell? What jokes were you going to tell? What were you not going to say? What were you going to eat? How much were you going to eat? <laughs> right? Like, what were you going to do on the weekend? What were you not going to do on the weekend? Everything, you, you didn't do a thing. Without considering her, without considering him. Why? Because you were infatuated. Because you couldn't get her out of your head. You couldn't get him out of your head. And so consider Jesus. If you love Jesus, you, you, you don't need to be told this. You already do it. You're, you're, in, you're so infatuated with him, you, you think about him all the time, and you consider him all the time, and so you don't so much need this reminder right now, but at the same time, we all still need this reminder because none of us loves him enough. And the honest thing is that, look, we don't love Jesus perfectly. There are times when our faithless hearts wander, and we start considering these things and this person, and we consider them 
a little more highly than we consider Jesus. And that's when we need to kind of come back to our, our senses and repent all over again and just do that cycle of repentance and faith and repentance and faith and come back to Jesus and consider him who forgives our sins, who receives us back, our, our faithless hearts back, and still loves us even when uh, we stumble, even when we fall. So we never stop considering Jesus. We want to always be remembering uh, our, our first love. So consider Jesus, right? Um, he's the one who's made us these holy brothers and sisters, and he's the one who gathers us into God's house. Um, in verse 3, it says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder has more honor than the house itself. Like the, the builder of a house, right, has more honor than the house itself. So we're not only to consider Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, okay, consider Jesus in light of Moses. Consider Moses. Let, let's look at Moses, and then we want to compare Moses with Jesus. Moses was the highest figure in all Judaism, right? So, so ever since like, Judaism was a thing, Moses has always been at the pinnacle. Some might argue, well, what about Abraham? Well, yeah, he's up there. But again and again and again, uh, in, um, Mosaic, uh, in, in Judaic uh, schools of thought, Moses is at the top. Why? Well, you look at Moses, who delivered God's people from their slavery in Egypt. We just got done singing about that. Cool song. And Moses was leading the Israelites after their, their, their escape from Pharaoh. He led them uh, through the Red Sea. <clears throat> he led them through the wilderness. Through Moses, God provided manna. He provided the water. He sustained them. He kept them alive. Through Moses, uh, he was the only one who could go up onto Mount Sinai and, and, and face the Lord and who wasn't afraid, who wasn't scared to death that they were going to die at the bottom of that mountain. And when he comes down from the mountain, he comes with God's law, uh, with the Ten Commandments. And furthermore, Moses is the author of the first five books of the, the Hebrew Bible. We call it the Pentateuch, or the Torah. And, and the Jewish community still to this day, you know, the, the Torah is their, their, their core. The books of Moses. So Moses is such a, a central figure in all of Judaism. And here the author of Hebrews is saying, you know about Moses? Yeah, you know about Moses. Well, consider Jesus. To elevate Jesus above Moses was this incredibly bold statement. The author of Hebrews isn't, you know, trying to pick a fight. It's not a competition. He's just saying, this is reality. As highly as you regard Moses, you need to see Jesus in a better light, in a clearer light. In Deuteronomy 34, uh, you go all the way back to, like, the end of the Torah. This is the fifth book of, of um, you know, what Moses wrote. And, uh, and we're told in, in the end of chapter 34, there was not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. By the way, it's presumed that, this, that you know, Moses' followers are writing this about Moses. Moses wasn't writing this about himself. <laughs> There's never been a prophet like me, like Moses, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's considered the books of Moses, but certainly you know, he had those who were um, helping him uh, after he died. And none like him for all the signs and all the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. So 
you know, you just can't underestimate uh, Moses. But that didn't stop others from challenging Moses' leadership. Um, when Moses was alive, as great a prophet as he was, as, as, as remarkable as a leader, you know, leading God's people, and being that, that priest who would represent the people before the Lord on the mountain, would come and bring God's revelation and bring the law and all that. It's, I mean, as remarkable as a priest and a king and a prophet as Moses was, there were still people who were challenging his leadership, uh, even like a sort of sibling rivalry. Um, in, in every family, there's sort of that pecking order where the, the, the kids are trying to figure out who's the boss, and who's, who's in charge, and, and, and Moses was not immune from that. He had an older brother named Aaron, an older sister named Miriam, and Aaron and Miriam had it in their head that uh, we can't let our younger brother, you know, be on top. And so they started to challenge Moses' leadership. And when they challenged his leadership, God put him in their place. God reminded them of the unique place that Moses occupied. And so in Numbers, we read about how when Miriam and Aaron uh, spoke against Moses, God said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, and I speak with him in a dream, right? That wasn't unusual, that there would be prophets, and the Lord would speak to them in dreams and in visions. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. This is the verse that Hebrews 3 is referencing talking about Moses being faithful in God's house. Hebrews 3 is referencing Numbers 12 right here. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth or face to face, not in dreams, not in visions, but face to face clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. This is why Moses is exceptional. God speaks to him face to face, and Moses beholds the form of the Lord. Now think about that for a second. God speaking face to face with Moses. Moses seeing the form of the Lord. Where and when was Numbers 12 fulfilled? Can you think of a time in the New Testament where Moses speaks to God face to face and beholds the form of the Lord? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. And there appeared to them, Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Speaking to him face to face. And beholding his form. So clearly what Hebrews is doing is showing us that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's not like Moses in that regard, a great prophet, a great priest, a great king. He's God himself. 
And when Moses was speaking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's beholding the Lord who's talking to him face to face. So consider Jesus, the builder of the house, right? The, the, the one who's got the true tabernacle. Uh, Kyle's going to share more about this tonight when we, when we uh, do our stories. But I just want to say right now that it's no accident that, that we named this church 21 years ago Tabernacle Presbyterian Church, a place where we come to meet with God, where God speaks to us, where we, we, we sense his fellowship, where we're included in, in his family. And the Tabernacle in the Old Testament was the place where God would meet with his people, just as he promises today to continue to do whenever we gather to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so God instructed Moses way back when, to build the, the tabernacle, this house where God would dwell among his people. So back in Exodus, after they had left Pharaoh and they're out in the wilderness, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and, and, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you shall make it. And so in that sense, you know, Moses is sort of the foreman for this project to build a house, a, a dwelling place, in this case a temporary one, a tent that they could move, and then eventually it would become, you know, David's temple, right? Um, and, and in Isaiah 56, we're told that foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, um, these I will bring to my holy mountain. They don't have to be Jewish. They don't have to be descended from Abraham. They don't have to be, you know, uh, in the school of Moses and so on. They can be foreigners who come in and are brought in, and then I will bring them to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer, and their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." God's house is supposed to be this place of welcome for all the nations, not just you know, Jewish people, but everyone who looks to Jesus as the true builder of, of that house. Why does God call the, his place of worship a house? Well, the same reason that you and I, you know, when, when we talk about our house, it has a special significance. It's a home. A house isn't just a place where so-and-so lives. A house is where your, um, your, your customs, your, your preferences, your kingdom, you know, so to speak, uh, exists, and it's different, it's distinct from the rest of the world. When you cross the threshold of somebody's house, their preferences, their priorities are, are, are what matter. Like, um, when you come into our house, it's typical people take off their shoes, right? We just got in that habit. We, we don't want, you know, people wearing their shoes in the house. It's just our thing. A lot of houses are like that. Um, some houses, you, you go into their, their place and, uh, you know, you can have all kinds of different uh, smells even. You know, it's sort of different from the world. How, inside, the inside of the house smells different from the outside of the house. And, um, and you don't want your house smelling like feet which is why, you know, you can leave your shoes on if you haven't had a shower in our house. Uh, that's why, it's why realtors know that uh, if they want to sell a house, they have an open house, they're going to bake cookies uh, before, the, before that open house because there's something about 
that smell that just is, is delightful. And when people come into that house, they go, oh, I want to buy this house. It smells like cookies. Uh, and, and so there's all kinds of things that are different about your house than the rest of the world. And God's house should be like that too. It's where you come through the doors of a church and you're immediately reminded that, okay, life is different among these people than being out in the world. Prayerfully, you know, when you come through the doors of a church, that is the aroma of Christ, where it smells different. It smells like, you know, the the kingdom. It reminds us of that. Let's just kind of go back to the the example of that that first crush uh, that you had. And maybe... Maybe things were vibing, maybe things were good, and it was sort of reciprocated, and then you start going out a couple of times, and then, you know, she invites you to her house to meet her parents. He invites you to his house to meet his parents. You're like, whoa, things just ratcheted up. Things are going good. But before you go into that house, you're nervous. You're kind of anxious. Am I going to Am I going to pass muster? Is this going to go well? Am I going to be approved? You know, and you, you step across that threshold, and what happens? You're you're welcomed. You're you're accepted. You you sit down for for a meal. You know, and in that sense, you're sort of included in the family. And so these are all just ways of looking at God's house as a way to understand that things are different in His house. Things are different from the way the world works. And when we come into His house, we are welcomed. We are accepted. We are brought to his table. The house is where healthy relationships happen. It's what's supposed to be happening in a church. A house is where you you listen to one another. You understand one another. You value one another. You even do conflict with one another. But you repair uh, those relationships. You're reconciled to one another. And and all that happens through the beauty of forgiveness and grace because we all know that we, all, we, we, we need to forgive as we've been forgiven. And that's why God calls the church his house. This is where healthy relationships are supposed to happen. That's why the world even recognizes when families fall apart. We call those broken homes. Because it's not the way it's supposed to be. Houses are supposed to have healthy relationships. Some of you know that that pain firsthand. And that's why it's a blessing to have the church where we can learn. We don't do it perfectly, but we can learn how to love, how to listen, how to forgive. And we do that through the gospel. Our houses should be little reminders, right, throughout our community of this house the house of the Lord, the place where the gospel takes priority. Jesus <clears throat> told his disciples um, after they were, he was asking them, who do people say that I am? Like, what impression are people getting? Oh, some say Elijah, some say, you know, this, that, and the other. And, he's, and, and Peter pipes up, he says, you know, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, Peter, you, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And, and this is why Jesus came, to be a builder. Like Moses built the tabernacle, right? Jesus is building the true tabernacle. Moses' tabernacle is just a copy. It's a shadow. And what Jesus is building is a greater house, the, the true tabernacle. Verse 5, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but 
Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The church is the, the new tabernacle. The church is God's greater house. And we boast in the hope that we have in its builder. He's the one we confess, right? In, in Ephesians 2, we get more of this sort of language of being made into this house. We're, we're told we're no longer strangers and aliens, but your, your fellow citizens with the saints, with the holy ones, holy brothers and sisters and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So through the gospel, we're no longer strangers and aliens. We're no longer out there. We're in here. We're, we're brought in. And we're made part of his household, brothers and sisters who are made holy through Jesus. And we're built together into this, this house of God. And Peter makes the same kind of comment. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So all of these patterns get continued throughout the Bible. They, they have these shadows in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills them. And then we are commissioned to go show the world what Jesus is like as, as a priest, uh, as, a, as a prophet, as an apostle, uh, as a builder as the one who builds his church. Ed Clowney, in his book, The Church, says that God's presence makes us his people, and the presence of Jesus constitutes the church as his temple, built of living stones joined to him as God's elect stone. The church itself is a temple, the house of God, sanctified by the presence of the Spirit. Look, God... Um, all this has tremendous implications for the local church. It, it's not enough for us to just theologically say, oh yeah, amen, right? I, I get that, I believe that. I believe that Jesus is the builder. I believe he's building his church. I believe that by faith I'm, I'm included in him. We, we have to like move from this thing being a theological category to something that we live out and that we embody. Where every member of the church becomes this living stone that Jesus has hand-picked in order to kind of beautify the stonework. You ever seen a really, really gorgeous fireplace with all these hand-picked stones that you know, somebody carefully selected and fit because this one's just right and this one's got this beautiful coloring and, you know, kind of nice shape and so on. Like, and it all comes together and, it, and it's beautiful because all of them are fit together precisely. And every single person at Tabernacle and every other church that exists all over the world, each of us are living stones that Jesus has hand-picked and fit into this congregation and that congregation. And so how does that change the way that we view one another? If Jesus handpicked you and handpicked him and handpicked her 
and set you into the stonework that is tabernacle. That ought to make us pause before we think critically of one another, right? That ought to help us to value kind of the the beauty and even the distinctiveness of one another. When they say something that we didn't think of before, they like something that we didn't see from that angle before. Like, that's good for us. And it makes us, makes us appreciate one another better. Do you, do you see how, how glorious it is to be included in the church? To be handpicked by Jesus and set in place as, as living stones? Um, you know, when Jesus was uh, in, in his earthly ministry, he had lots of detractors, and some were coming up to him and saying, isn't this, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't he just sort of Joseph and Mary's son? He's just that day laborer. And aren't his brothers and sisters right here? And then they took offense at him. And they still do. People still take offense at Jesus. They're offended that he would come and build, of all things, you know, the church. What in the world? They're offended that he would come and and, and exalt himself above Moses, what are you talking about? Or above Muhammad, what are you talking about? Or above, you know, this religious figurehead or that? Well, it's just reality. He's God in the flesh. And and, And of all things that he would come to do, he would come and he would build his church. They wanted him to come and build some world power that's going to dominate and it's going to force everybody to follow through subjection and so on. Instead, he builds a church, a representative, a representation of an upside-down kingdom, right, where where the last will be first, where in order to be great, you serve, you wash feet instead of exercise lordship. And, And that offends people. The world's offended by the church. Sadly, there are offensive churches that have more in common with the world and how it wants to run its kingdoms. But look, when churches start really following Jesus and making the fruit of his spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience, and start forgiving one another, people take offense to that because it it exposes our need for a savior. It exposes our need for grace. We have to hold fast to to this builder. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. He is the one that we confess. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. He was talking about his body. He was talking about the resurrection. His body is the true temple. And when he was on the cross, he gave his body. So that everybody who believes in him as our priest, as our prophet, as our king, everybody who looks to him for our righteousness, for our forgiveness, we are included in his body. And then we're raised up with his body and become part of his body, the church, this this precious organization, the apple of his eye. People are offended because of all the organizations on the planet. The church is the most significant, most important. It's the only eternal, the only everlasting organization that will ever be. People look at the church and they go, that? Please, 
And yet here we are. Jesus came to build his church. By grace, you and I are living stones put into it. How will we build with him? How is he calling you to build with him? Yeah, this is, this is great to know theologically. How do you apply it? How do you live this out? What are we doing to help build the church that Jesus came to establish? He's still building it. And we are still participating in that. You want, you want to know how you can help build a church? You know, look, at, look in your bulletin every Sunday on the Get Connected panel. You're, you're building the church when you serve in the nursery. You're building the church when you're teaching our youth. You're building the church when you host a home group or some kind of fellowship group or Bible study. You're building the church when you, uh, when you show up for you know, the, the, the ministry day in a couple of weeks. You, you build the church when you, when you just show up to any of these things. When you just show, you go, here am I. Lord, use me. You build the church when you invite people in. You build the church when you, you know, pass out a contact card. You build the church when you help us multiply. You build the church when you pray, Lord, how will you use me to help Tabernacle build more churches? All through the grace that God gives us through Jesus. He's the builder of the church. Lord, let's, let's pray that he continues to build Tabernacle. Lord, we give you thanks for what you've built here. Uh, we give you thanks for including us. Uh, as living stones, to be uh, the recipients of your grace and the, uh, the beneficiaries of your pardon. Lord, thank you for revealing Jesus to us, for showing us our, the, the one who came to take our place on the cross and to raise us to new life with him. And please find us faithful uh, to keep considering him, to keep building with him, to keep loving the church as he loves the church. Lord, thank you for the past uh, 21 years at Tabernacle. We pray for the next 21 that we would never stop fixing our eyes on our builder uh, and that we would continue uh, to value one another and to, to, to do life according to your kingdom and to show this community and, and other communities uh, the glory of being included in your house. We pray in Jesus' name.